0: Let's check in on the federal government's checkbook. Here's what matters. Live from New York City, I'm Lauren Goodwin, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everyone. It's the week of October 9th, 2023, and today we're going to take last week's discussion about the wall of worry facing investors and Try to bring some clarity around one of those issues, which is the U.S. government, or at least their budget. You may have seen that the U.S. House of Representatives Speaker McCarthy was ousted last week, which may make a shutdown more likely in November. We anticipate this will make conversations about
1: government spending pretty pertinent for the economy and markets in the coming months. And it's not just about this this latest scuffle over a potential shutdown and over the speakership. This whole year has included several budget scuffles to really uh, minimize them and a sovereign downgrade. And we're heading into an election year.
0: So this week, Julia Herman, who you just heard, and myself want to check in on the government's financial bill of health and frame out the fiscal policy impacts we're most attuned to. We'll think about over the short, medium and longer term if you can stick with us. It just so happens that our level of concern and the stakes involved rise as we think further out in time. So let's get started with what's on the table in the short term, and we'll move in that direction over the course of the episode. And with the short term, I'm thinking here about the 2024 budget.
1: Given that the government nearly just shut down over this budget, I think it would be natural for investors to think that we're heading for a really big deficit or that spending is truly unchecked. But actually, this is an area where things are expected to be a little more stable or even improving relative to the prior year, to the 2023 fiscal year, in terms of general financial health. So in 2022, the deficit was about $1 trillion, 4% of GDP at the time. For fiscal year 2023, the Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, expects this to grow by almost half to over $1.5 trillion, or 5.8% of GDP. Also, the CBO is just one of many estimates and some are higher. For example, macro research firm Piper Sandler expects the deficit to almost double to $1.9 trillion or 7% of GDP in 2023.
0: Okay, so no matter whose estimates you look at, we are facing a ballooning of the deficit from 2022 to 2023. So then looking one year further to 2024, It's not expected to continue that trend. You said it might be better.
1: Yeah, actually, surprisingly, the CBO expects the deficit to be pretty stable in both dollar terms and as a percent of GDP, about that 5.8 percent in 2024.
0: Okay. to your point, that is surprising, although I will say that that 5.8 percent of GDP deficit estimate is still still pretty high and higher than recent years. Um, But I think it's surprising not just because we almost had a shutdown over it and may again face that challenge here in a couple of weeks, but also because it seems to buck this trend that you've been describing of ever-growing deficit contributing to a snowballing in government debt over time. So then why does this look like a relatively more benign portion of our fiscal risk spectrum today? The government must be either spending less money or collecting more revenue.
1: Well, when we're thinking about 2024 expectations, it's a little bit of both. Yes, there will be more spending associated with the Inflation Reduction Act, but this is more than offset by the corresponding tax increases that were also passed in that bill, as well as some support from the CHIPS Act. There's also some spending, like the 2023 omnibus spending bill, that will begin to roll off. We should also remember that student loan repayments are restarting, This is, relatively speaking, a drop in the revenue bucket, but it does help. And then, of course, new spending bills could disrupt this picture for 2025. But for the 2024 outlays, it looks like a bit of a steady state. Okay, so when we're looking at this from the risk
0: perspective, the 2024 deficit is lower on our list of main concerns, potentially, but... Fiscal support is still needed to support economic growth, especially if we expect the economy to slow next year. So, are we going to feel that support, or does fiscal health come at the cost of cyclical economic health?
1: There can oftentimes be a trade off here that's fair. And countless countries have learned that lesson over decades that government spending alone cannot fix an economy. So, in that sense, Fiscal support likely will not, and I would argue should not, spare us from a potential 2024 recession.
0: But there are sure to be certain relative beneficiaries, or not, so winners or losers, of that fiscal support
1: steady state you referred to. Some of the clearest winners from the support from the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act include sort of the obvious green energy infrastructure, including digital infrastructure, as well as the entire semiconductor manufacturing supply chain. And as our friends at Strategius rightly point out, those who benefit relatively less from that support, so the so-called losers in this bucket, would be those funding that spending with higher tax revenues. For example, the corporations that saw their tax bill rise from that new 15% minimum corporate tax policy. Oh, taxes. So no such thing as a free lunch. If we want
0: better infrastructure, we have to foot the bill. And speaking of footing the bill, we need to talk a little bit about the federal government credit card, if you will. When we roll up all of these yearly deficits over time, we reach the accumulation of our federal government debt and the cost of servicing that debt has risen dramatically over the past couple of years as both interest rates or treasury yields And also the overall level of debt has risen. So you're paying higher interest rate on a bigger chunk of money. We talked about this earlier this year in association with the debt ceiling debate. So I think it's time to re-raise the question. Is that rising interest cost still on our radar?
1: It certainly is. And this is where I would say the medium term fiscal risk lies, given that we're not too concerned about that short term or 2024 deficit situation. So the U.S., as you just said, has a record amount of debt and we're paying a record amount of interest on it. Net interest costs will be $663 billion this year, moving to $745 billion in 2024. That is per the CBO. And for the past three years, we're looking at a growth rate in net interest costs of 35%, 39%, and then 12% year over year.
0: Those are the sort of, eye-watering growth rates you really only want to see on your investment return profile. <laughs> uh, so why is that not a risk that's
1: flashing right then? A uh, really good point. It is a record amount of money, but relative to the size of the economy, things look slightly more digestible. The interest bill for the government is about 2% of GDP right now, and that's down from a record of 3.2% of GDP in the early 90s. I also want to divert us just a bit here and make the point that, you know, I mentioned the
0: government's credit card bill earlier, the the pile up in money, the total debt levels that they have. But the reality is, is that a government, especially a government like the United States government, who's able to over long periods of time issue and repay debt, it's not actually the same as a household credit card. You can go for years and years and years and years without being totally balanced in your budget. And it's okay, and in some cases, even preferable, which is maybe a a discussion for another day. But the long story short for today is that there's an ability to pay this bill.
1: How are prospects looking on that front? Right, well, managing interest costs, and just exactly to your point, looks to be more of a medium or even long-term rather than a short-term issue. Current interest costs as of the fourth quarter of 2022 are less than 10% of tax revenues. That's down from 18% in the early 90s. So of course, new debt issuance and the risk of interest rates moving higher from here could disrupt this, but it would still be a medium to long-term problem. Okay, you queued you us up for the long game then, so let's go
0: there. You mentioned at the top of the program that long-term fiscal considerations are also where we're seeing the highest stakes. And this has to do with a topic that we in the biz call debt sustainability. We've noted when we covered the debt ceiling debate that the sovereign credit rating of the United States recently downgraded and then even shut down fears. These debates, they almost it feels like deja vu all over again, but they're never in a vacuum. The buck has to stop somewhere. And even modest increases in deficits and interest costs over time can really shake the broad, long term debt sustainability
1: picture. I do think it's the right time to remind our listeners of these potential stakes, Lauren, because we are actually at a pretty critical threshold here, which is a one-to-one ratio of federal government debt outstanding to GDP. So debt right now is about 100% of GDP. And this relationship says everything about what a nation is doing to generate economic growth and income for its citizens if debt exceeds GDP, there are concerns that the debt is not productive and that inflation can potentially begin to run amok. And that's the tip of the iceberg in terms of excess debt levels. Now might be a good time just to
0: pause and say that Julia's mentioned two numbers here. Debt is about 100 percent of GDP, that critical threshold, and the deficit is likely, it looks like, to be about 5.8% next year in 2024. 100% is the level, the total amount of debt that's accrued over time. 5.8% is what we're adding to it or potentially adding to it next year. So that's the difference in those numbers. And Julia, regarding your point about this really important threshold, a one-to-one ratio of debt outstanding to GDP, you and I often refer to our shared background in the emerging markets world. And it's pertinent here because a lesson That you have to use austerity or cut down on government spending to contain debt levels over time. It's recently been used in Europe and in the U.S., as a matter of fact, after 2008, the financial crisis. But it's very often applied in countries
1: like Argentina. Right, I was actually in Argentina in 2018, right before the debt issues came back. Uh, came back there, and it's a really tough lesson uh, for a country to learn. However, as you as you as you mentioned, this lesson is not exclusive to the emerging markets world. It's also been pertinent uh, as we've recovered from global crises and in Europe. Let's remember that the UK learned this lesson just last year. It tried to issue new sovereign debt. And the market seemed to deem that that debt was not sustainable. And it was met with a pretty nasty sell-off in gilts or their equivalent of treasuries. You know, zooming out from that specific example, I've been asking a question pretty often over the past year, which is how long can the U.S. go without heeding that lesson? How far can U.S. exorbitant privilege get us? And by exorbitant privilege, Julia is referring to the fact that
0: as the world's reserve currency holder, there tends to be more structural demand for treasuries than almost any other sovereign debt. And that can allow the U.S. to, at times, finance more spending than may be sustainable over a longer period of time. And I think the answer to your question, Julia, at least in part, is how long or how far can the U.S. go? Well, history tells us can go as, as far as until they can. Yeah. That brings us to our Portfolio Pause, a segment of the program where we share an investment idea. We've had a lot of great discussions over the past few weeks about interest rate duration, specifically applied to investments across the U.S. Treasury curve. And so today we wanted to expand or link our fiscal policy discussion or spending discussion from sovereign debt, that's what a country like the U.S. issues, to municipal debt in asset classes like both
1: tax-exempt and taxable municipal bonds. When the U.S. credit rating was downgraded earlier this year, we noted that the credit quality of the sovereign need not affect those of healthy municipalities. And that remains the case. There have been some downgrades in the muni space. But just like other areas of fixed income, munis have an investment grade space for those with a particular eye on credit risk. And default rates are objectively low across the space.
0: So fundamentals here continue to look robust. Tax revenues, though down off a very, very strong 2022 base for both federal and local governments are still quite supportive in our perspective.
1: I also wanna add in that not just in munis, not just in fixed income, so many investors are asking us about entry points. How do I get into this market? How do I participate when everything looks so expensive? And our own Nylon product team has highlighted that the price to yield ratio, so the relative uh, expensiveness or cheapness, in the broad muni market, looks to be at its most attractive point in 10 years. So potential entry point there. perhaps the
0: greatest reason why our view here is more structural than tactical, because long-term access to these asset classes can provide access to infrastructure themes, which include not only potential inflation resilience, but also participation in what we see as really important long-term trends in digital infrastructure and in the energy transition. Coming up next, we're considering the tough sustainability questions from what climate events mean for your homeowner's insurance bill to whether corporations have really bought in to that narrative. But that's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters. In the meantime, please remember to give us a like, follow or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our views at NewYorkLifeInvestments.com and click the Insights tab. Until then... I'm Lauren Goodwin, here with Julia Herman, and we'll see you next time. Our podcast is produced by Will Tyus, and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which will vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment as at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. There is no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with the New York Life Insurance Company. Securities are distributed by Nylife Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. Nylife Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.